0: This book was published in 1923 and written by George R. Chatburn. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. I'm truly honored that you have chosen this podcast to help you fall asleep. Special thank you to all the listeners that I have heard from during the week. Thank you to Isbri Erie for your lovely review on Castbox. Thank you also to iTunes listeners, Ertap and David from Harlem, for your lovely reviews and kind words. If you're a regular listener of the show, and you would like to say thank you, a great way to support the show is to become a Patreon or sponsor at boytosleep.com. I'm grateful for everybody who sponsors the show with a financial contribution, regardless of how small it may be. For all other listeners out there who find the podcast beneficial, Please leave a review and comment in your podcast app. Even one sentence helps out. You can also find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by searching at Boy to Sleep and the Boy to Sleep podcast. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. Highways and Highway Transportation. By George R. Chatburn The following pages on highways and highway transportation do not pretend to be an exhaustive treatise on the subject, but rather a glimpse of the vast development of the humble road and its office as an agency for transportation. Possibly the grandeur of the mountains is best appreciated by one who lives among them, who climbs their avalicious heights, who daily experiences their power and majesty, and measures their magnitude by grim muscular exertion. But even so, it would be foolish to contend that he who gets his information from the seat of a Pullman car receives no benefit from the hasty glimpse, or that his imagination is not quickened and cultured by the experience. In writing this book, then, I have had constantly in my mind the myriads of people who have not had the time, and possibly not the facilities to search the pages of literature of the past for the origin and development or to work out the present importance of our amplification of roads and of road uses. It is felt that many of these people laudably desire a conversational knowledge of the origin, evolution and present status of highway transportation, even though it be glimpsed by a very rapid passage through a very large subject. The primary objects have therefore been to sketch briefly and simply the development of the transportation systems of the United States, to indicate their importance and mutual relations, to present some practical methods used in the operation of highway transport, and to make occasional suggestions for the betterment of the road as a usable machine for the benefit and pleasure of mankind. Any observations made or conclusions drawn are purely personal. I entered into and have carried on the work entirely unbiased. I am not financially or otherwise, except academically, interested in any firm or company whose business has to do with transportation either directly as a carrier, or indirectly as a manufacturer of the instruments or accessories to transportation, nor does any of my living come from societies or foundations organised as propagandists for any particular forms of transportation or transportation materials or equipment. I have no admiration for the man who hopes to see the steam and electric railways put out of business or even caused to run at a loss by the automobile, motor express or motor bus. Neither have I, plautus for the man who would arrest the growth of the new forms of transportation by drastic legal enactments and excessive taxation in order to preserve the old. I believe there is room and need in the United States for all forms of transportation, and that each can thrive in its respective field, just as do wheat and corn, but none will thrive if they attempt to occupy the same field at the same time. The text is naturally divided into two parts the development of highways and their use. The first part treats of the relation of transportation to civilization generally, explaining briefly how the two have grown together like children at school, how each has helped each other, and how the meter of one is the measure of the other. Leaving the old world there is sketched all too briefly the development in the United States of transportation facilities, from the coastal and natural waterways, from the pack and trail used by the Aborigine and early settlers, through the tracks of the pioneers, the periods of canal digging, the toll road competition and the railway frenzy, to the advent of the modern road with the coming of the bicycle and automobile and their wonderful, accelerative impulse. The effects of state and federal aid upon the road conditions of the country are fully treated as is also the planning of highway systems, automotive transportation for business, and pleasure, including rural motor express and bus lines, and their effect on production and marketing are described and discussed. In the chapters of highway accidents and highway aids to traffic, attention is called to many types of accidents, including railway crossing accidents with suggestions for their mitigation here are also given the most recent practical rules for the regulation of traffic in both city and country. A chapter is devoted to the aesthetics of the highway, a subject just coming to the attention of roadmen, who have heretofore been mostly concerned with distances, grades, widths, and surfaces, which, by the way, are frequently mentioned in the text. As in all building construction, the first appeal was made to material things and their relation to the pocketbook, while the last and most enduring appeal is spiritualistic and is made to the pleasures of the imagination. The same idea of making the road a means of catering to the preservative and pleasure instincts of man, is considered in the final chapter on aids and attractions to traffic and travel. Safety and warning devices are discussed as such, while comforts and conveniences are means for luring the average citizen to the highway, to the camps and parks for the broadening effect upon his character, the health of his body and the enlightenment of his soul. Thus we close a most hurried journey from the very beginning of roads to their modern, far superior yet imperfect attainments. The main thought throughout has been the road as a usable agency in the economic and entertaining phases of life, each equally important to the wealth, health and happiness of our people. The mind easily travels ahead to a time when separate roads will be devoted to the two great ends of business and pleasure. Then the flight of fancy passes on to still another period of time and sees the highways made inoperative and superfluous, overgrown by weeds and grass, for the argoses of business and pleasure have taken to the air. As the several peoples inhabiting the earth have progressed from barbarism through the different stages of civilization, the transportation occasioned by their wants and desires have kept a close pace. By a study of the transportation, travel, movement of goods and commodities, and the means and facilities for its accomplishment, the relative civilization of any people, their rank and position may be accurately surveyed, graduated and estimated. The highways of a nation whether they be of land or sea, or both, are most vital elements in its progress, and could almost as well as transportation be considered the measuring rod of civilization. Sociologists differ as to what constitute the several stages of civilization. One might trace the development of man through literature, another through art, another through government. Others consider his economic activities the more fundamental factors. The most widely used economic classification, according to Eli, is based upon the increasing power of man over nature and consists of direct appropriation, the pastoral stage the Agricultural Stage, the Handicraft Stage, and the Industrial Stage. These stages are well illustrated in English history, the stage of direct appropriation corresponding to the Prehistoric Period, up to 54 BC, when the Romans overran the island of Britain, the pastoral stage from this time to the invasion by William the Conqueror in 1066, the agricultural up to about the discovery of America, when a great impetus was given to travel and discovery, the stage of handicraft from 1500 to the invention of the steam engine, and its application to manufacture at the beginning of the 18th century, the industrial stage to the present time. While these stages necessarily overlap each other considerably, it will be seen that as one declines the next is ushered in with some radical change in government or in economic or industrial condition, The present day, immediately following as it does the Great World War, out of which have issued many specific discoveries and inventions, notably those advancing the theory and practice of air navigation, with many potential possibilities in new lines of transportation, and the setting forth of an idea which is capable of leading to a better understanding or even a confederation of nations and altering all forms of national government, may be the beginning of a new stage of civilization. The stage of direct appropriation covers the whole course of prehistoric man from the time the first ape stood erect from some five hundred thousand years ago through the stone, bronze, and iron ages to the age of literature and art, during these long years civilization traveled far, for the least cultured savages observed have advanced not only away beyond the highest of the lower animals, but also beyond the lowest intellectual estate of which human beings may be supposed capable of subsisting. And from the lowest to the highest of these tribes are shown traits, varying as greatly in degree as from one stage in the above classification to another. The Indians at the time of the discovery of America and the three centuries following, and many of the tribes of Africa, during the explorations of Livingston and Stanley, were and still are in this stage, and hence have been subjected to scientific study and investigation. Their governments, while variable are, of the primitive types, Ordinarily, a chief autocratically rules because of hereditary influence. Little is manufactured, planting is scarcely known, and by hunting, fishing, and collecting nature's products of wild seeds and roots is a subsistence obtained often with long, arduous, and dangerous labor. Efficiency, as we understand that term today, is very low, and the number of persons that a given area can support is few. No one can predict but what tomorrow he may have to go hungry, or suffer cold from the inclemency of the weather, for his store of food is nil or small, his shelter rudimentary and clothing scanty, Note the hardships of party of Henry M. Stanley during his expedition across the African wilderness in quest of Eamon Pasha. Notwithstanding, Stanley's men were possessed of firearms and edged tools and carried some provisions with them and were traversing a country teeming with vegetable and animal life. Many times they were on the verge of starvation. The number of the natives in these wildernesses are no doubt kept low because of the extreme difficulties of procuring the necessities of life. The barbarian requires less, of course, than the civilized man. He is satisfied with mere subsistence. He is improvident and relies upon picking up his needs from day to day as a robin picks worms from the grass. Cannibalism often exists for the sacredness of human life has not yet been established, although magic and crude religious rites are seldom missing. While private personal property is recognized and retained by personal prowess. The ownership of land is absent. Cooperation of the crudest sort only is found. Division of labor consists largely in having the females perform the work of planting, cultivating, carrying burdens. When these are attempted at all, cooking and caring for the children in the crudest fashion, leaving to the men the work of hunting, fishing and fighting. Each tribe is self-sufficient and consists of a chief with a few followers bound together loosely for the purposes of protection from the other tribes. Exchange, barter and trade is at its lowest ebb. Consequently, transportation is practically unnecessary and roadways except mere trails do not exist. In the pastoral stage, the process of evolution, certain animals undoubtedly were domesticated and used for food. Whether or not this domestication preceded or followed primitive agriculture or ho-culture, is not important, as the pastoral stage of culture evidently lies between the hunting and the farming stages. The written history of mankind indicates that this stage largely prevailed among the earlier Hebrew, Greek, and Teutonic races A private ownership in cattle and herds was recognised, but the necessity of moving about with the flocks precluded fixed habitations, although large areas were claimed and held or endeavoured to be held, from trespass thereon by neighbouring tribes. A given area would thus support a much larger number of people than in the preceding stage, A small amount of trading or bartering was carried on, and consequently some transportation was required, but road building as such was little known. Rivers and coast waters for canoes and dugouts were no doubt early taken advantage of by the aborigines of bordering territories. But since there is so little division of labour, so little of barter and exchange, commerce was not developed much during this stage. In the agricultural stage, the growing and storage of crops increased by the use of animal power greatly changed the economic and social conditions of man. It made possible and profitable the living in fixed habitations, even in communities, and this brought out the needs of rules of government. But even yet each family provided, without the assistance of others, for practically all its own needs. In planting, reaping, threshing, grinding the meal and cooking, the family became the unit. No great division of labor was yet evident. Consequently, exchange, barter, and transportation still remained low. Ownership of land was necessary if a family was to cultivate the same land year after year. This meant definite rules and laws, and consequently the development of governments, Ownership of herds and land brought wealth and a certain distinction in the community. Slavery, which had no doubt existed to some extent in the pastoral stage, because it greatly increased wealth, grew immensely. Large families likewise meant more workmen and greater wealth, distinction and leisure, hence polygamy and palandry, often existed. As the evolution continued, there was a trend toward handicraft and the division of labor. The products of one place began to be exchanged for the products of other places. This necessitated some forms of transportation, meager though they might be, and trails between communities. The manorial and feudal systems in England and on the continent during the later years of this stage were developed the manorial or feudal systems of government. The people lived largely in villages, each controlled by a lord or earl, and to whom in return for his protection, the use of land and other favours, they were bound to return to him service in the cultivation of his land, and in waging war when called upon to do so. The lords in turn held their allegiance to the king. Some handicraftsmen were among the retainers, but they were so few that they did not form an important part of the village. Neither was there a great deal of travel or transportation, the manor instead of the family was the unit, and it was almost self-sufficient. The land was allotted in small tracts, and tilled in the manner designated by the Lord. Each person raised barley, oats, peas, and lentils, sufficient for his own needs. Variation in crops was little practiced much land at distances from the manor was still devoted to herds and flocks. However, toward the later part of this stage, the feudal system began to break down. There were more freeholders and free tenants living upon the land they cultivated according to their own ideas. Wheat, rye... Flax and root crops were assuming greater importance. This variety in farming and the larger fields cultivated by the individual naturally increased the products to be sold or exchanged, and hence increased transportation. People who had devoted only so much of their time to spinning and weaving as was necessary to supply their own family needs, were beginning to do more, selling the excess and purchasing from others things not grown or manufactured by themselves. Thus were developed towns as centres of trade, money as a medium of exchange, assumed greater importance and a division of labor brought into being and increased the social standing of trades and professions. Thus was ushered in the handicraft stage of civilization. In the handicraft stage, in England, this stage lasted through approximately five centuries, from the year 1200 to 1700. The merging of one period into another came about so gradually that a definite date can hardly be designated and the time is so long that undoubtedly many changes occurred in the economic activities as well as in the government and literature of the people. While it is probable that merchants, middlemen, who brought from one person and sold to another, had thrived throughout the earlier civilizations of Asia, Africa, and Europe, and even extended their trade to Britain. Merchandising held a comparatively minor position in England until the 12th century, when merchants became very prominent so much so that combinations or guilds were formed by them in all of the large towns for the purpose of protecting and controlling the conduct of business, and to some extent of maintaining a monopolistic control of the trade in their particular businesses. A guild was an association or fraternity of persons engaged in the same line of business. It differed from a trade union in that the guild was an association of masters and employees, whereas the trade union is an association of employees only. Many of the merchant guilds grew wealthy and strong. They obtained royal charters from the crown either by direct payment or by an arrangement to pay a special tax, or secured recognition in the borough charters. By authority of these, they were endowed with certain privileges such as limiting the number of their own members and the number who could participate in any line of merchandising, entering into secret price agreements and trade arrangements, controlling the import and export of wares, the establishment of a court which had absolute jurisdiction over its members, others not members engaged in the same line of business. This could settle trade disputes, discipline its apprentices with the whip if necessary, could imprison its journeymen who struck work, and could fine its master members who acted against the rules. And finally, the members of the company were forbidden to appeal to any other court, unless their own court failed to obtain justice for them. Moreover, meeting together for social enjoyment, feasting and worship, the helping one another in sickness and poverty and uniting together for the pursuit of some common cause, naturally brought about very close and fraternal relations. Craftsmen of like occupations joined together in guilds also, and they, too, became not only numerous but very influential. They regulated their own internal affairs and specified how many apprentices might be entered, and under what circumstances a man might become a journeyman or master craftsman. Numerous other guilds, social and religious, were extant throughout Europe. The merchant guilds and the craft guilds materially affected the production and trade of the community and country. The merchants of Phoenicia and later of Greece and Rome are said to have visited the British Isles to secure tin and copper. The great merchant guilds outfitted adventures to the ends of then known world to secure the goods, whether they were silks, spices, furs or grain in which they were dealt. They were instrumental in the passage of laws encouraging and securing commerce. They themselves regulated the quality of goods dealt in. For example, the Goldsmiths Guild of London required that all silver and gold plate and jewellery manufactured within three miles of London should be brought to the Guild Hall for inspection. If it did not come up to the specified standard, it was ordered to be remelted. If it did, it received the hallmark that anyone purchasing it might be assured of its quality. It is said that the guilds were so punctilious in the matter of quality that made in England, goods received in the markets of the world a standing of the highest rank. A reputation that never entirely disappeared, and as a consequence, English uprightness of character became proverbial. The domestic system is all that this made necessary the building of ships and harbors, and the improvement of internal highways of trade, and these in turn stimulated manufacture which as yet was carried on by hand. The family, instead of the town or guild, became the unit. Apprentices were entered and kept, usually, as members of the family, and worked alongside the sons and daughters of the master. As these grew to manhood, their pay beginning with mere keep, was gradually increased with their work and responsibility until at the end of seven years they were fitted to go forth as journeymen and later themselves became masters. The work was done at or near the master's home. The raw material was usually received from a millman to whom was returned the finished product. The middlemen disposed of it to the merchant, who in turn sold it to the consumer. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed hearing about highways and the origins of highways. I look forward to bringing you another episode of the Boy to Sleep podcast very soon. Until then, good night.